Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jyoti Brar, a political activist, editor, and commentator based in Bristol. She is the deputy leader of the Workers' Party of Britain and author of The Drive to War Against Russia and China and Identity Politics or Class Politics. She was a contributing author to The Rise and Fall of Project Corbin, Identity Politics and the Transgender Trend, and Capitalism and Integration. Her recent article on dystopian capitalism was published by the Institute of Art and Ideas and made into a short film by the communists. I welcome Jyoti Brar to Savage Minds. One of the things that I've noticed, and this isn't recent, identity politics has made an x-ray of the problem and it's made it more painfully visible, the problem. But I noticed the problem quite poignantly after the US invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, where I found myself sort of politically homeless. People who I thought were on the left were getting behind the war on terror. And just now, right before connecting with you, I've just finished a piece on the privatization of the war in Afghanistan with Biden's announcement that he's ending that theater. It's not at all. We're looking at a new Eric Prince initiative, even though he was booted out. His ideas were booted out a couple of years ago under the Trump administration. It looks like that's going to be another theater of private warfare. So I've seen you talk. I've read some of your work. I was really impressed by your work on identity politics as well, because I think that has brought a lot of people on the left who, like me, feel homeless. Tell me, can you answer this question? Why is there no left left in a way? I mean, yes, there's us, but I feel like we're a tiny minority. Why is there no left left? Yes, well, you know, in the imperialist countries, there has been a very long campaign to appropriate the left, the movement for socialism, the working class movement, uh, whose interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the ruling class, um, to appropriate that movement and make it tame, uh, to take away its teeth. And that's really been done by the system of imperialism itself, because the system of imperialism is the system of leeching the wealth of most of the world into a few a handful of user countries, a handful of parasitic imperialist countries uh, whose um, financial might is backed up by their military might. And these countries suck up so much of the wealth of the world in what um, Marxists call super profits that they are able to bribe a small section of the working class into seeing, into identifying with the system, into having privileges that are connected with their subservience to the system, their willingness to serve the system. And so what's been done is the leadership of the left of the working class movement, uh, as well as a significant section of workers themselves have been so bribed. Um, And then you have to add to that the situation after the Second World War, when there was a very real threat of socialist revolution across even the European imperialist countries after World War II, socialism was triumphant over fascism. And the gains of socialism, not only militarily, not only its ability to defeat the mightiest war machine that humanity had ever produced up until that point, but its ability to meet the needs of its people, its ability to abolish 
inequality, poverty, homelessness, you know, to provide education and healthcare and culture and a decent, dignified life to all. That had been proven by the Soviet Union in the interwar period. And then, of course, you know, its contribution, incredible contribution um, to beating fascism meant that socialism, socialism's prestige was incredibly high and the militance of workers across Europe was very high. And so in order to save themselves and save their system, the imperialists of the uh, Western countries um, offered a bribe to their workers. They offered them a kind of halfway house. You don't have to have a revolution to have the things that socialism will bring you, is what workers in the West were told. Um, of course, it was paid for by the continued looting of the rest of the world, essentially, as well as via taxation. Um, but a privileged position was granted to workers in the West vis-a-vis -vis workers everywhere else. They were granted for a time for a time, they were granted things like free education, free health care, council housing. You know, we for a while, we didn't really have homelessness in this country. Um, uh, for a while, we didn't have the kind of absolute poverty that's now coming back. Um, and so it seemed to a lot of people that the need for revolution was gone, the need for socialism was gone, or that we were sort of making our way slowly towards it and things were just going to keep getting better. So, and the working class unfortunately had a leadership that told them that this was true and, and sent them to sleep essentially. And as the threat of socialism for various reasons I won't go into receded, and as the economic crisis of capitalism reasserted itself after the post-war boom, we have seen wave after wave of attacks on the working class and the things that they won, which they thought they'd won for good, and which turned out only to be temporary concessions. We've seen all of those advances being undone. We've seen ourselves returning much more to a, to a rawer, redder, more ruthless version of capitalism, uh, which makes no concessions to the desires and needs of the working class. Um, which is much more like what we saw in the pre-socialist era and in the Victorian era. Um, and, a, and a ratcheting up again of um, imperialist kind of aggression in the world. You know, without the Soviet Union to rein it back in, uh, we saw the unleashing of, you know, the aggressive war machines once more from 1990 onwards. Um, and at that time, uh, a working class which had lost its organization, which had lost its militants and its ability to stand up. And what we also saw in that period, which comes back to your question about identity politics, we saw a period of the academization of the real struggles of the working class. So the struggle against racism, which is really a struggle against imperialism. It's imperialism which needs racism to justify the way it behaves in the world. Um, and to divide its own workers against themselves. But it, these things kind of, in these two motivations in, interconnect. Um, that struggle, which is a struggle against imperialism, has been turned into a kind of struggle for equal rights within the system of imperialism, which is either a, a kind of non sequitur, like it's, it's clearly impossible uh, in a system which generates inequality, or what it, it what it, ultimately comes down to then is it's a demand that some of the top jobs should go to black people. 
if we have black CEOs, if we have black presenters on the news, if we have black MPs, then there's no racism. That's become the narrative of the anti-racist movement as, uh, as it has been distorted by academia and turned into an academic study. And our focus is on language and on how many people of darker skin tone have you know, well-paid jobs. And the question of the systemic racism that props up imperialism in the world as well as at home becomes totally sidelined. And the, and the class content of that question has been taken away. And that's been done really because the working class movement has lacked decent class conscious leadership in this period. And the same thing happened to the women's struggle, exactly the same thing. The women's struggle, which is a struggle against really class society and can't be solved until we remove class society has again been turned by bourgeois feminists into a question of how many women are in the top you know paid jobs how many women are in the in the news or in the big law firms or you know uh, as mps and again this does nothing to assist in the liberation of the mass of poor working class women who are totally unaffected by this fight over you know equal pay at the top echelons when they're sat on minimum wage often working two or three jobs and juggling them with caring responsibilities you know the, the disconnect has become absolute but the the kind of self-referential discussions of the bourgeois feminists you know they separated themselves off from the working class women's movement quite a long time ago and a movement which could have been a very militant part of the working class struggle for socialism was essentially demobilized by these people because they turned it into a, an attack on men rather than an attack on the class system uh, and they, they alienated working class women by the things that they talked about the solutions they offered you know they had slogans like kick the enemy out of your bed how does this work for humanity you know on a human on a on the scale of the whole of humanity and all of the women who are oppressed by the class system you know to tell them that the solution is men are your enemy stop sleeping with them stop mixing with them stop having anything to do with them it's clearly insane it doesn't make any sense you know and uh, and burn your bra and all these kind of very silly facile responses to a serious you know, uh, age-old problem, um, and it sent it sent the working-class women who were militantly joining a movement that was a, for them was about you know being being liberated from the extra oppression they feel, and men ought to be their allies in that. Um, it sent them out of the movement, and the, and again that movement was turned into an academic discipline bourgeois feminists writing long tracts, and they've taken over the minds of our our young who go to university their understanding of these struggles because they don't they haven't grown up in an era with a strong class conscious leadership and organization their only understanding of these issues is framed by this academic discourse women's studies race studies etc etc and unfortunately that is then creating a situation where young people who go to university uh, have a completely distorted view of what it means to be progressive and unfortunately they're identifying that label actually with people who are standard bearers for the very system which is holding society back the imperialist system is in fact what they're supporting when they think they're being progressive and anti-establishment 
last night I was watching Jermaine Greer's 2018 interview and I was quite impressed by her accessing a class narrative. In fact, she was very critical of feminists who are fighting for equality. She says quite clearly, the problem isn't that we do things like men. We need to also sympathize with men who are being conscripted into wars they don't want to fight. We need to understand it's the system that's the problem, not emulating the system by saying more women in the army. And it really struck me because how is it that people are missing this very basic terrain of class in this day and age. And add to this the fact that Biden, even before he went into office, was already stacking his cabinet with people from big tech and the war machine. It's right there on paper. You know, even the New York Times published on this. How is it that people are missing the bigger picture? It is right in front of us. And I think people see it and don't see it simultaneously. There are so many ways in which the monopoly capitalist system, the, the concentration of wealth and power into fewer and fewer hands, corrupts and distorts every aspect of public life and every aspect of so-called democracy and makes it very clear that um, the way democracy is supposed to work and the way it really works are very, very far apart. And people see that constantly to the point where they're quite almost cynical about about it. But I think one of the reasons for the cynicism takes us back to what I was saying before, which is the lack of class conscious organization and leadership. So people without organization, people, ordinary workers are weak. Without leadership, they are directionless. So when they have neither, what are they supposed to do apart from shrug and say, well, what do you expect? The rich will do what they want to do and there's nothing I can do. That's how people feel. They feel I, they don't feel we when they're disorganized and lacking in leadership. They feel I, what can I do? And also don't forget that this situation is combined with one where the life of the working class is getting harder and harder year by year, working longer hours at a faster pace for less money. That means more stress and less time more cares, more worries, less ability to look up and think and find out and research. Who's got time to research things? I meet so many working class people who say to me, well, I know I'm being lied to. I don't trust the media. I don't trust the politicians. But the reality is, I don't know exactly how, where and why, which bits are lies and which bits are truth. I don't have the time to find out. I don't have anyone I trust to tell me. And so I just get on with trying to survive. And that's the mentality of huge sections of the working class in the imperialist countries right now. Now, my view is that is going to change simply by force of necessity. There are some members of the working class who are already turning around and saying, I need to do something now. I can see the direction this is going and something needs to change. And they want to get active and get organized. There are others who will be forced to that situ that position by circumstances. As the working, as the uh, economic crisis deepens, as the availability of jobs dries up even more, you know, unemployment is rising, destitution is rising, hunger is rising in in these countries which are the richest countries in the world. And we talk about that often: the richest countries in the world. What does it mean? It's why is a tiny country like Britain, which is where I live, obviously the US is a big country, a very powerful country. 
Britain is a very small country, but the legacy of the British Empire, the legacy of the fact that Britain was the first to industrialize and the first to be able to project that industrial and military power around the globe means that we are still a very big imperialist power. That's why we're the sixth richest country in the world, despite having a tiny territory and a tiny population. Huge amount of the world's wealth flows through the city of London in tribute to the power of British finance capital. And yet, side by side with this unknowable, unimaginable, unquantifiable wealth, there is sharply, steadily, exponentially rising poverty. We are seeing the return of homelessness, destitution, hunger amongst working people on a scale we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And at this moment, it's only getting worse. It's only getting worse until the workers are able to start to fight back and demand a share, a, a tiny share even, you know, some redistribution of the wealth that there is on the way to demanding actually the whole pie. Never mind giving us a few more crumbs. We need the whole thing. We need a totally different system that serves our interests. But to get to that consciousness, I think, you know, unfortunately, things have to get pretty bad for people. They also need to have a sense that there is an alternative. And they've been robbed of that for a long time. Obviously, you know, I'm part of uh, the Workers' Party. We founded our party very much uh, with the view to re refounding a mass class conscious working class movement that has both the vision uh, and the determination to organize workers in their interests and to show them what those interests are. I was thinking about the document you did on transgender trend yeah. and the way you discuss how identity politics engages the competition of oppressions. Now, one thing that I've heard many times over the years is that feminism, woke feminism laid the groundwork for the current transgender ideology. And I can't disagree with that contention because as you know, you wrote, the oppressed are encouraged to embrace their difference and wallow in self-pity and isolation. And Germaine Greer, in what I was referring to earlier, her 2018 interview, says the same thing. And she says, I was raped, but that didn't define me. And why is it that now we have a feminism that's recycling this hatred of men, men as evil, and she says, now we're all victims. We have to identify ourselves solely through this one act. And she pushes back on that. And I was quite impressed to see this from her, steeped within a class narrative and an understanding of the greater workings and machinations of capitalism. So given that everyone is, is falling along certain lines, BLM brought this out last year as well. Meanwhile, Adolf Reed was saying, hey, we need to look at class here. Uh, he even spoke out in a piece in Common Dreams about the contention that COVID is targeting black people, that this is a racialized disease now. And he says, there is no science to show this, sure. COVID is going to take out obviously the elderly, people with comorbidities, and the poor, and that will necessarily include a higher number of people of color and women, but we need to start talking about class. So the trap of falling into an identification with oppression seems to me a huge part of the problem here. 
And then in a recent podcast I did with Jamaican U.S. philosopher Jason Hill, he said one thing that really bothers him about identity politics within the trans movement is that there is real oppression out there and this is not it. Not having your pronoun observed is simply not oppression. Yes. What is the way out of this? Because we seem ensnared and it seems like the people screaming oppression are paradoxically the most privileged because again this came out of academic discourse largely and people who are able to speak about their pronouns have the time to waddle on about this on twitter all day the people in the factories barely get time for a tea break absolutely i mean you put your finger right on the button there there's a kind of obscenity in my view about in fact the very most privileged sections of womanhood and uh dark pigmented people um, in academic circles crying over the prejudice that they've encountered and sitting demanding safe spaces and a, and a puppy or a cushion to cuddle, you know, because they feel so sort of threatened and attacked by the maleness or the whiteness or, you know, this is absolutely nonsensical. They are, as you say, the people who cry about victimhood tend to be from the most privileged sections of the, the part of the population that they're claiming to identi identify with and claiming to have you know, been oppressed because of. Um, the reality is, as you say, the hugely impoverished women working in factories practically as slave labour on the other side of the world to feed their families um, would have no time for it and have no time for it to, to feel sorry for themselves to say, oh, I'm a victim, I need a safe space. They, they, need a re they really do need a safe space. They need safe drinking water. They need to know their children are going to be free from disease or from gangsters or from you know, predators of all kinds when they're going to work. You know, that, they're, that they can go to bed at night and they'll wake up in the morning. You know, that's, that's a safe space. And we should be demanding safe spaces for all human beings, but a safe space is not a place where, you know, some kind of fragile ego won't hear a word that they don't like. A safe space means the ability to raise your children in peace. Peace being not just the absence of war, but the absence of all the class inflicted violence of poverty and, you know, everything that surrounds it. Now, it's not an accident that we're being pushed down these diversionary routes into these into more and more kind of separate silos from which to declaim our difference and our victimhood. It's very much part of an agenda of the ruling class to stop us from coming together, to stop us from recognizing our common interests and our common enemy. Now, deplatforming and the policing of language are playing a very important role in all of this, because what they're all about is scaring people off from tackling these issues head on, scaring people by saying, if you say a certain word, if you stand next to a certain person, you will become persona non grata, you will be kicked off the speaking circuit, kicked out of the social media platforms, um, kind of a campaign of vilification will be launched against you. You will no longer have a voice of any kind and therefore keep 
quiet. And it goes from top to bottom, from people who have careers in speaking and writing and don't want to lose those careers, to ordinary working class people who might quite like to go along to a meeting about a, an issue that worries them, but will be scared to go and to speak in, for fear of using the wrong word and being attacked. And people really do fear using the wrong word, you know, because they can't keep up. They change all the time, for one thing. What's, what's the officially you know, accepted right terminology for, for whether it's you know, women or oppression or um, you know, the numbers of sexual proclivities that seem to all have a label these days or uh, orientations or whatever, or um, whether it's for you know, the color of your skin and how you describe that. You know, I am a person of, oh, I don't know what we call it, see, dual heritage, mixed race, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one race, it's the human race, but you know, my dad's a brown person from India, my mum's a white person from England. Um, I actually can't keep up with the way that's supposed to be, you know, described in, you know, so, so as not to offend somebody. Um, despite the fact that none of it really offends me, I don't find it particularly interesting. I don't find it important to need to know how I should describe myself or my skin colour. I can just say my dad's from India if it comes up in conversation, but it's not really the main thing about me. You know, somebody, um, as it was someone who was was wanting to say nice things about me, but I actually had a, a, a bit of a moment. I saw someone de describe me on Twitter as a woman of colour. And it actually made me kind of squirm inside, you know, because to me, that's the language of tokenism. It's the language of, we will promote somebody into a position to, to tick a box that says, look, we have women, look, we have brown people. And very often the people who are promoted on the, on the basis that they're brown or Muslim or a woman are not particularly talented. So it actually serves to further, in fact, undermine the concept of equality when you're clearly promoting people just on the basis of you know some characteristic and not on the basis of being any good at the job and for that reason alone i don't like the idea of being referred to you know in my line of work as a woman of color as if that's why i'm doing what i'm doing like someone just promoted me because you know to tick a box somewhere you know because i haven't actually been promoted by anyone ever <laughs> but <laughs> you know what i mean you understand i, I think you get the point I'm making. This hierarchy of oppression, this victimhood, this this pushing of people into separate silos, um, uh, from which to sort of shout at, shout at each other, is very much about stopping people from coming together as I said, stopping them from recognizing their common interests and their common enemy, and decapitating the movement for socialism and turning it into its opposite. The demand for equality under capitalism is not the struggle for socialism. It's a, it's a demand for reform. The demand for the reform and the fairness of capitalism is as old as the system of capitalism. It's never led to anything useful for the working class and it never will. And so it's very useful for the ruling class. And of course, we have to recognize that the longer the system of capitalism exists, the more concentrated the wealth of the world becomes in fewer and fewer hands. And then, of course, the more vulnerable. They might be incredibly wealthy and powerful, but they're also incredibly vulnerable, the ruling class. There's so few of them. And so they really need to put huge resources into keeping us divided. Thomas Chatterton Williams has written about the need to undo ourselves, unhinge ourselves from race. 
And I agree with him. Like you, my father is Indian. Like you, my mother is white. And the heritage my father left me intellectually was not to identify with race, that there was, that there is one human race. Darwin told us this. He made fun of people who thought that humans could be categorized by race. And even with this knowledge, here we are. It's insane for me to witness people categorizing themselves by race, even these distinctions of black and brown. When I was in London, I was at a book launch and a woman found out my father was you know, from Gujarat and she's like, oh, you're black too. And I thought, I was a little uncomfortable because I thought, <laughs> well, that it was also shocking to me because in the UK that term is used, or at least at the time was used to include anyone who was not quote unquote white. In the States, black and brown now has some currency. So brown means you could be from Honduras, but black means, and I'm, I'm thinking this is insanity. We know mm. that even whiteness itself is a fiction because that one drop rule in places like Louisiana and Mississippi that too long perpetuated meant that your whiteness could be erased by a grandparent. This raises the question of the fiction of whiteness. I asked my students when I would teach a class on the Middle East, I would ask them where whiteness begins and ends. Is it at the Bosphorus? And how do we address the Ottoman Empire then? And these questions are so important today in an era where we see people not only identifying through these fictions of race, but also where now politics is taking place through that fiction. Everyone is waiting that verdict against Chauvin. Now, if it's a verdict of not guilty, there will be riots, everyone is foreseeing. But if it's guilty, people will feel that justice has been done. The greater question is, why have the issues of police violence remained at the margins of this? Why has the death of a man in police custody somehow escaped any kind of class recognition and the larger issues as to why a BLM movement that was largely driven by very neoliberal upper middle class black women, given the subtext of working class, poor, oppressed black Americans, because we're not able to access an honest dialogue today over race in the UK, in the US, in other countries, wherein there is always going to be this deviation from reality and where the meta-narrative will always be white oppressors, black oppressed. How do we get beyond this kind of dichotomization of black, white, oppressor, oppressed, and so forth? So the thing is, there are oppressed and oppressors. It's just that they're being mislabeled and misidentified. And the lack of science, you know, when scientific socialism is taking away from the working class and they're given substitutes, the substitutes act as a kind of loose code for the system, but they don't correlate properly and they don't explain properly. And they lead us to be very easily manipulated down total dead ends. So instead of recognizing that there's a ruling class and there's a working class, instead of recognizing there's a system, 
a capitalist system, an imperialist system, which operates in a certain way to maintain the ruling class and its power and wealth and to keep the working class serving them and, and funneling our, our work to them by way of the wealth that we create. We have this narrative that says it's about that the white people are oppressors. Well, that's come from a kind of uh, a historic um, accident that the Europeans were the first to have the Industrial Revolution and they colonized um, the world between them. Most of them, of course, the Japanese uh, slightly don't fit that narrative. But that's, you know, that's been the origin. It was, it was actually the, the, I think that the idea of whiteness versus blackness was really um, sort of invented to justify the modern slave trade. Of course, slavery is a very old thing, but it had been abolished in, in Europe a long time ago, and uh, it was reintroduced uh, by capitalists uh, in America and Britain, you know, making this um, circular trade uh, in various commodities. And the slave trade was reintroduced in order to facilitate that. And very quickly, they stopped using white people as slaves. It made it easier to keep the slaves down, essentially, if you could have that very obvious and visible divide between slave owners, um, free people and slaves. And plus the fact that it happened to be Europeans who were colonizing um, you know, the rest of the world, there, there seemed to be a kind of white race, brown, black race thing going on. But uh, you're absolutely right. As soon as you look closely at this idea of whiteness as white equals oppressor, you take the class out of it. OK, the, the European, the Western ruling classes ended up in the position of the powerful elite in the world. But is every white person an oppressor? And as you say, where, where in geography do people stop being white and start being, as soon as you actually look at it, using that terminology to try to explain the world you can't explain the world because it doesn't and it's full of holes and anomalies and and essentially and nonsense and it leaves white working class people with a insurmountable problem in order to be righteous you have to be in some way brown or black otherwise you you're by vert you, by just by the color of your skin the fact of what family you happen to be born into you must be an oppressor, even if you're right, that you could you could be from the most you know third generation unemployed, you know, with a drug addicted parents, absolutely the bottom of the heap in some uh, predominantly white Western country, and you you can be attacked by a well educated black person as having white privilege, which is clearly nonsense. You know, it does nothing to enlighten anybody about what's really going on in the world. Um, it does, of course, serve the ruling class in keeping us divided and stupid and confused about what the real problem is. And the whole thing of um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement being sort of taken over by the more privileged sections of uh, the black people in America um, using it for very specific equality-based ends, uh, which will do nothing to help the mass of the poor. You talked earlier about COVID, you know, disproportionately affecting the poor. And because black people are disproportionately poor in the US, in Britain, 
then it's been talked about like COVID attacks black people more. And like you said, the, 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 the class content of that, the poverty angle of that is taken out. Um, the reality is if you're Barack Obama, COVID is not going to affect you more than it affects, you know, George W. Bush, right? They're from the same class and they have the same privileges in terms of their health and their economic status and their ability to isolate and all those things. What are the, what are the reasons people are getting worse affected by COVID because they're poor? It's because they have terrible nutrition and so, and stress and their general level of health is low. Very often they have no access to green spaces or the things you need to keep a healthy mind and body. So their immune systems don't work very well. They live in overcrowded conditions if they need to isolate, they can't because they don't get sick pay and anyway, they don't have anywhere to isolate and to keep food on the table, they have to keep going to work. It's, you know, these are the reasons why the poor are being disproportionately hit, the poorest in our society. It's not skin tone. If, if it happens that more black or brown people are in that situation in a particular country, that is a that is a, a parallel question and, and it does indicate that there is systemic racism, but it doesn't indicate that COVID is somehow attacking black people more. It's a, it's a question of then why are more black people more likely to be poor in your country? And that comes back again to the system of capitalist imperialism. And the way to fight that is to unite, to unite the black and the white workers against the system that is keeping them all poor. We see with the Derek Chauvin trial, he has three colleagues who are also up on charges in the death of George Floyd, and two of them are not white. This is what struck me is why Americans were on the streets over race and not over police abuses, because nowhere could it be clear when you have four officers charged with the murder of a man and two of them are not white. Does this not obviate the need for a discussion of police power, abuses, and the way we frame it also, because as you saw, the media ran with this because we're in an era of clickbait. Even researching the piece on the privatization of the war in Afghanistan, the only major media outlet that put at the very bottom of the article that this was not a complete end to the war was the New York Times. And I was surprised by that because the Times also runs with the fiction what, what strikes me, however, in all of this is that the divisions that neoliberal policies on the social and economic levels have brought us is people are so hyper-individualized and atomized that the pronoun debate takes precedence over who's homeless debate. I was living on the canals and rivers in and around London for several years, and I saw homelessness rise by the month. It was, it was shocking to me to see how little even Corbyn was doing on this issue. He was more worried about pronouns than homelessness. I was rather happy to see him ushered out simply because I thought this is not the way we should be heading. What can you say about the way momentum drove that narrative? Because it seems to me from my bird's eye view of this that momentum was in part to blame for that focus leading us away from historical material analysis to a atomized how do you feel about your pronouns analysis well you're absolutely right to pinpoint the fact that um again in the lack of a scientific socialist leadership in the lack of meaningful working class organization the working class has become hyper individualized 
totally atomized. That's why they feel weak. That's why they feel powerless. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, the, the way that these struggles against racism, against sexism have been academized and actually turned down very safe channels for the ruling class and away from their integration into the class struggle for socialism, um, these things all interact together and that's created an atmosphere. It's the, the, the latest developments uh, in terms of the identity politics wars, which which do stem from the struggle struggles against racism and sexism from the uh, 60s and 70s in particular, certainly in Britain. Um, but the latest sort of iteration in the the transgender trend, this whole kind of mania, as you say, over over pronouns and and gender identification, uh, it, it, it's a fashion. And fashion always is pushed from the outside, doesn't come from within. And it's very much being pushed on us for exactly the same reasons, the hyperatomization, but also this creation of a, another divide, another way to separate the privileged sections of the working class from the mass of the working class and make them fight one another. Now we see this in so many areas of life we see how the better educated sections of workers who are still workers, who still have to work for a living, they're not members of the ruling class, but they have a certain level of education and privilege, they tend to be better paid, etc. They're taught to despise and also to fear the mass of the working class. They fear falling into their ranks, losing their little bit of privilege. They despise them for their lack of education, their inability to use the right words for things. And the, the pronoun debate and the pick your gender kind of fashion is very much feeds this because the mass of the working class see it as a ridiculous, the concept that you pick your gender. They haven't been to university and had it stuffed down their throats and, and kind of justified in a kind of pseudo theoretical way, as it is to students who, who go to university, and especially if they're studying any of the humanities or social sciences. Um, so they just use their common sense, their material reflection of the world tells them that there's a definite thing of being a man or being a woman they know there is their whole experience the whole world teaches you that there is uh, you have to have had your head stuffed of nonsense to question that um but of course the educated sections of the working class have had their heads stuffed with all kinds of pseudoscience and think that you know what you feel is your truth and they've been told that endlessly they've been taught to value their individualism and of course there's a, that's also a difference in their in their the way their lives are the mass of the working class see themselves very much or much more likely to see themselves as part of a mass part of a workforce they're more likely to work in jobs where they feel that to be the case every day the more educated sections of the working class uh, see themselves as individuals precisely because that's how they get paid. That's where their privilege comes from. Their privilege comes from competing as individual intellects in a different type of marketplace. And so it fits with their idea of who they are and what life is all about to see themselves very much as individuals and to value their personal experiences. Um, and, and, but really, fundamentally and at heart, this whole uh, kind of culture wars thing is about dividing the working class against itself and and stopping workers from coming together, stopping the students who many of them come from, you know, some section of the working class 
from being good leaders in the working class movement. They're, they're detached. You know, we've we've seen in these last decades, um, internationally and at home, a kind of NGOization of um, the working class movement, by which I mean, whenever there's an area of resistance, the ruling class very quickly comes in and professionalizes it. They'll turn it into a charity or a, some kind of community organization where the most able, the most eloquent, the most firm leaders of a community will get some little salary, some perks for turning that um, care for their community into a job, for turning it into an act of do-gooding on behalf of the state or on behalf of some charity. And actually what it does is it takes away the kind of revolutionary anti-establishment element of what they were doing, turns it into a kind of machinery for just keeping people who would be troublesome leaders quiet. If they have little careers, it's, if you look at the race relations industry, for example, in, this, in Britain, it was established in the wake of big uprisings of um, black and brown people around Britain uh, at a time when there was huge amount of police racism, huge amount of racism in life generally, uh, and it was hard for, uh, you know, the, the young black people, young Asian people had a disproportionately difficult time getting jobs, um, they were treated badly in school, all the rest of it. So there were these big uprisings, they called them the riots back in the 80s, and in the wake of that, the race relations industry was set up, and certain leaders of these communities were given jobs and offices so that they could sort of keep themselves busy doing casework for 20 years or so. Now that is all being dismantled again, but it served its purpose. And we see this time and time again, you see it in the oppressed world, what people call the third world, you know, countries, um, charities come in and find talented leaders of commun local communities and turn them into their local officials. So they're kind of kept busy, actually keeping the system going and keeping the resistance down by handing out little bits of, you know, sucker here and there and deciding who's worthy and who isn't worthy. And everybody's life is distorted by this type of economy. And we see it in Britain, as I said, so the race, race relations industry is a perfect example, but there are many others. Uh, of this kind of decapitation of decent leadership um, and the ruling class has, has been quite good at, at doing that. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. Well, I saw this when I was working for MINUSTA in Haiti, the UN operation there. I was quite taken aback by how international NGOs were given a seat at the table with UN organizations. They were, along with the UN workers, coming from the upper echelon of those countries, societies. So in the UN itself, you'd have people from Sri Lanka, from India, from Peru, they were the 1% of those countries, however, and they were pushing and still today push ideologies that are coming out of university programs, such as the UN is now pushing to make sex work a thing so that 16 year olds are sex workers and they can empower themselves with little to no regard for the on the ground reality 
of these people who are being prostituted, who are being trafficked, who are being enslaved. Again, Haiti has huge problems of human trafficking, usually over the border of the Dominican Republic. I worked on child trafficking there. And the people at the table with me were taken aback by the way the UN would turn a blind eye to certain actions. And this actually helped trafficking out more than stopping it. And one person said it's almost as if they want to keep their mandate in the country, because the longer you keep the machinery of oppression going on in word, not that it doesn't exist in reality, the more you get donors to give money and keep your operations alive. So I was constantly surprised, even on a daily basis, by new WTAF moments of, I can't believe what I just saw. I can't believe what he just said. You had Monsanto represented there and the Minister of Agriculture pushing the organically modified seeds so that the farmers in Haiti who were used to doing their own seed propagation, of course, could no longer do it because these seeds, they could not be propagated. So they were one generation seeds. That's it. Thinking in terms of the post-colonial era, these countries that are considered part of what is now called the global south, but developing countries who are put at the crosshairs of transnational corporations who go in, who set up shop, exploit the way that NAFTA wreaked havoc in the Americas, and you would see the factories being put up in Mexico, then being pushed further south to Honduras and further south because workers wanted more wages and they could exploit the further south they were pushed. And I'm wondering how people in the West are not seeing that the exploitation overseas is the very same thing that they have at home. The disenfranchisement of workers' rights, the way that unions are being left toothless, even in the UK, to deal with basic working rights. The capacity for people to speak out, as you mentioned, is being crippled by the fact that more and more people are working three and four jobs just to keep going. Skip to the last 15 months of lockdown after lockdown and people, especially freelancers, have nowhere to turn as they're being told to stay at home. Then you have the division of the people who drive Uber or deliver for Deliveroo. Well, they're doing the good job. They can go out and bring me my meal while I stay home locked down because I'm salaried and I'm going to get my money. I'm going to get my 80%, right? Why is it even in the age of COVID? I mean, this is what shocks me, Jyoti. I, I shake my head as I say this because I have seen little to no action by any governments to deal with the primary issue that would save a lot of people from poverty and homelessness, which is basically protecting the rights of the renters. The renter class has been completely ignored. We saw governments from the UK to the US propose mortgage freezes or you don't have to pay your mortgage off. The interest, yes. But renters were left in the cold. People have not been able to put two and two together there. And I've been going banging on about the renting issue for the whole time because still not one government proposition to say anyone who owns second and third homes, stuff it, you're not getting paid rent. Renters don't pay rent. Why has this not happened? Yeah, well, why... Are there any of the injustices we see in this system? You know, capitalism has long ago become imperialism. It's monopoly capitalism. And the power 
of monopoly. Its economic power is reflected, therefore, in, in the state power, in its power over governments. You know, our governments might appear to be elected by the working class, but the reality is uh, the choices on offer to us are pretty much, you know, the same, the same things with different colours on the front. Uh, rep all the politicians who stand for the major parties represent the ruling class and the interests of the ruling class. That's who they serve. They are servants of a system which concentrates wealth in fewer and fewer hands. And that wealth and power of the monopolists is reflected in every aspect of our lives. And so we see the rampant unfairness of everything around us. And we see that it makes no sense even for the rich to allow this situation to carry on. And yet it must, the logic of the system is that's how it works. And you can't tackle inequality without tackling capitalism. That's the fundamental truth at the heart of this that people have to grasp. And that's why we need socialism, a socialist understanding of the class question rather than just a kind of, oh, I hate that guy because he's a Tory. We have to understand it's not about being a Tory. It's about the way the system operates that brings us these rampant inequalities, growing inequalities. Inequality has been growing since capitalism came on the scene and wealth has been concentrating since that time. And now it's done to such an obscene extent, uh, you know, that the, the mass of the world's people are totally impoverished. And yes, it, we are coming to a time, I think, where workers in the West will once more start to recognize their common cause with the workers elsewhere because they're starting to experience those very conditions that they for a while thought by some virtue of their cleverness they'd escaped. Um, but we, for so long as capitalism exists, we can't escape inequality, we can't escape poverty, we can't escape unemployment. All these things are built into the system of capitalist imperialism. There is no way out. Um, you talked a bit earlier about, um, you know, the sex workers, sex workers. What an obscene term that is, you know, to go so far. You know, it was bad enough in the days when Marx and Engels were writing and prostitution, which has been with us for as long as women has been oppressed, which has been happening since we had class society. Prostitution is the other side of the coin of women's oppression. and. It's part and parcel of class society and it won't go again, it won't go until we have socialism. And it's not, it's not an accident that so many of the trafficked uh, young girls in Europe are coming from countries which were formerly socialist countries and where when socialism collapsed and they were left with nothing, they become prey to the worst type of, uh, of gangsters and, and human traffickers and their poverty means that they can't fight back. Why is it that prostitution disappears? under socialism, you know, because people have options. You don't see this idea that it's, there's something empowering about selling sex, selling sexual services, you know, like just any other commodity, using your body, uh, you know, the kind of ultimate um, commodification of the human being, that um, there's anything liberating about it. It's clearly nonsensical. Anybody with any common sense knows that if you have other options you'll take them so it's really about you know the the impoverishment and desperation of poor girls and this ability to 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 traffic you know huge gangs making 
so much money has become this massive machinery uh, that the European Union actually has facilitated, you know, the, 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 in Europe, you know, from Eastern Europe to West, but you were talking about it, it's happening everywhere, you know, the, the poorest countries, the girls from those, the, the, the poorest countries fuel the market for um, trafficked girls, mainly girls, um, around the world. It's not all girls, but it is mainly. You also talked about this issue of um, of charities, you know, and what um, what really stuns me is how we have allowed the machinery of charity to be built back. There was a there was a big period of pushback against the whole concept of charity. Workers are the ones who make the wealth in the world. They shouldn't need anybody's charity. What they need is to have control of the wealth that they're producing so that their needs can be met. They need dignity. <laughs> they need empowerment of a real type, which is financial empowerment and, and political empowerment, that they're in control of the society whose wealth is, is being spent in order to, to create itself. So under socialism, the concept of charity is, is completely absurd. There's no such thing. People work and people are supported and life is created according to the resources of society, the ability of people to work and, and you know, uh, what that society prioritises. You know, there's planning. There's planning to meet the need of the people using the resources of the people and of the country. But um, we have allowed the ruling class to reimpose this idea of worthy and unworthy causes and people and to to whitewash their wealth by making charitable donations to their pet causes, which distort all sections of the life of society, you know, suddenly you have hospitals fundraising for machinery that they should just have, schools fundraising for books and pencils when they should just be there, you know, and um, a lot of the charitable donations with which, you know, the, the, the rich sort of whitewash themselves and they get iconiums in the newspapers oh he gets an awful lot to charity if you look at charitable donations around the world and in the rich countries in particular most of it is going to things that are used by rich people you know elite schools are huge recipients of elite charity as are elite art institutions um etc etc so many of the things that the rich really care about are turned into charities so they can make tax-free charitable donations, you know, and um, get a pat on the back for doing it. Yeah, I look to charities and NGOs as institutions that are like band-aids. You put it over a wound, but the wound is going to fester and be infected. Nothing is done. And the actual cause as to why there is economic inequality is never addressed. It's always about well, let's take a look at this. Stonewell has a diversity champions program. I don't know if you will be shocked to learn that many NHS trusts are spending 2,500 pounds a year to buy into this system so they can put it on their website and say, we're a Stonewall diversity champion. And as you probably know, Stonewall has, just like the HRC and DC and many other gay and lesbian, formerly gay and lesbian organizations, turned their energies almost uniquely towards transgender topics, transgender identity, transgender anything. Because it's a wealth of funding right there to have a new neoliberal narrative to push upon people. 
and unsurprisingly, everyone loves it. The organizations love it, just like you had BAE, which is a major arm supporter, putting up its diversity slogan on its website just after the BLM protests in the US. So now you can be pro-BLM, put it on your website, and you make arms that kill people in Yemen. I mean, there is no math logic here, but people are eating this up. I'm pretty shocked that the British people are not on the streets over the NHS spending in its trust 2,500 even more to be part of this when 2,500 pounds could pay nurses better, could buy important equipment, could prolong the life of people. How can we address this politically within the UK to let our politicians know that this is not where funding should be going and to even question and have open panels of investigation and denouncement over these kinds of NGO tactics that are allowed into parliament, into committees that set up policies like, I'm thinking of the Equalities Act, or the fact that people can now potentially announce that they are the opposite quote-unquote gender, whatever that means. I say whatever that means because we're talking about an identity, not sex. And this has been red carpeted all the way to the point that women were not left at the table to discuss this. This was put into law so that now people have certain legal rights to the dismay of the feminists and of now more and more men and women who are waking up to this nightmare that their basic rights to distinguish sex might become illegal, that they could possibly as is happening under Biden's administration with the laws that are being considered to make it a crime for a therapist to counsel someone that their gender identity is a fiction and that maybe they should work through it in therapy, that that will be soon considered conversion therapy and that therapist could potentially go to jail. So we're seeing capture within every level of institution, but which is also making a shortcut to parliament, to the Senate, where governments are now being subverted by corporate interests, even by these very NGOs, which have huge financial backers, such as Martine Rothblatt, the Open Society Foundation, Jennifer Pritzker. There's a long list of the funders in the United States. How can we address this when it seems that our governments have a corporate capture, which is unbelievable the more you scratch the surface? So you, when you talked about the NHS there, uh, that's one of the best indications that this uh, demand uh, for gender recognition and fluidity and uh, whatever we want to call it, this acceptance of the transgender uh, phenomenon is a top-down campaign. It's coming from the top and being enforced below. People who work in Britain for state uh, institutions, the NHS, schools, councils, they are the ones who are being forced on pain of losing their job to accept all of this, uh, to, to take training in it, to accept it unquestioningly, and to promote it on behalf of the government amongst the working class. Uh, and to refuse even to serve people who won't accept it, you know. So you will start to find situations where, um, you know, uh, someone who wants a council service or who's in a school 
or you know getting an education or coming to a hospital for treatment can be denied service by the workers in those institutions because of uh, offending against you know the rules uh, that are being laid out by the transgender um, lobby um, now the reality of why there's two there's there's two reasons i can see for this jumping onto the transgender train of the of the ruling class one is a certain section of the ruling class has seen an opportunity to make a really shitload of money basically uh, it's a fantastic train to put people on because it's a lifetime of pills and surgeries and self-modification uh, that never ends. And um, it's a great way, you know, taking a step back, looking at the whole working class, it's a great way to um, distract and divert the attention, the energy and the resources of um, alienated, disenfranchised working people to tell them that the problem is not society, but it's in themselves. Um, and this is a message that our ruling class is at great pains to push on us in many different ways. They want us to feel constantly that every failure of the system is our personal failure. We get it throughout the educational system. You know, little kids from, from the age of four upwards are made to feel that if they don't do well, it's because of some lack in them, not a failure of the system to help them to develop because by the time they're out of school and on the dole as many of them are destined to be what our system doesn't want is they're they're thinking well they're well educated they understand all kinds of things they've got good critical thinking skills they're able to see that capitalism isn't working for them not that they somehow failed in school and therefore everything that comes to them in the rest of their life uh, is is somehow kind of justified it's their just desserts if you like and so but also this this pink washing drive if you like, by the corporations, this diversity washing, pink washing, trans washing. Um, what's, what's so useful about it to the imperialists is that you can essentially solve the contradiction in society caused by prejudice against gay people, for example, without uprooting the class system of capitalist oppression and exploitation. You can make laws uh, and, and facilitate equality of treatment between gay and straight people without changing the class nature of society. And this is the reason it's become so important for the ruling class, because they can champion this particular cause. They have turned the other causes which should be working class causes uh, against capitalism and against imperialism, that, you know, the fight against racism, the fight against women's oppression, um, they've turned them into similar kind of equal rights, uh, you know, discussions uh, that you legislate for and, and argue about as a way of making it look as if they are the upholders of human liberation. And it's a, it's a massive inversion of reality. So our ruling class has taken from us uh, the truth about who is oppressing whom turned it inside out and upside down and pushed it back on us. And now we have the ruling class, you know, the owners of huge corporations preaching at the workers about oppression. Don't you oppress your neighbor by not using his pronoun? Don't you oppress that uh, the woman billionaire over there? You know, um, this distortion, this inversion of reality, um, it's it's 
It's a recognition that capitalism has nothing to offer the planet, that it has to hide behind these lies. You know, the reality is that ever since socialism came on the scene, ever since the October Revolution, more than 100 years ago now, the working class saw that women's oppression could be solved. They saw that racism could be ended, unemployment and poverty could be ended. They saw all these things in the Soviet Union and in the rising socialist movement around the world. And they, were, they became the strong demands of working people everywhere. And in order to try to kind of justify the continued existence of the system, it has tried to dress itself up in the clothes of progressive um, politics. But people have forgotten what progressive means. Progressive means anything which turns the wheel of history forward. The wheel of history needs to go from imperialism to socialism to communism. It, anything that holds that back is reactionary. And so although they dress themselves up in the pro progressive garb of equality, all of these campaigns to keep working people divided are essentially reactionary. They are a diversion from the real progressive struggle to move humanity forward through socialist revolution, through socialism, and to divert and distract workers from their need to identify themselves as workers, to identify their needs as being in direct opposition to the, the, the needs and priorities of the ruling class, to recognize that they are the wealth creators, they need to create a society in their own image, a society that works for them to move the wheel of history forward and build socialism. There's also a lot of media capture in this Jyoti. One thing that strikes me is the NUJ having published a four-page document to tell people like me how to report on LGBT issues. One of the four-page memos here is this. In your reporting, always refer to a transgender person's chosen name and ask them which personal pronouns they would prefer to be used to describe them, etc., etc. It goes on. It's four pages of its ideology. Now, we're reading a story in The Guardian about a woman who raped another woman, and we're thinking, oh, wait, you can't rape without a penis. I mean, legally, that's the definition. You have to have a penis to rape. So more and more, we're seeing cases emerge in the media where women are rapists. Uh, the scandal within the prison system in the UK has also emerged about two and a half years ago. And we're having media all over the UK that's been captured by not only the NUJ's document here, but there's also an agenda and an NGO within the trans community to push for this kind of representation. So if the media is cycling through narratives like the woman who raped someone else, there's no end to how we can get information accurately when the media is complicit in spinning the lie. Yeah, well, I mean, it's another indication of the type of society we live in, isn't it? The media is also concentrated in a tiny number of hands. It's owned by people who have a vested interest in propagating the system of imperialism, preserving the system and propagating its ideology and pushing that onto the rest of us. It's part of that huge campaign to force us to accept the world as the bourgeois tells it, it tells us it is. Now, if the world is simply as you think it is, is if everybody's world can be different, how is it possible for us to join together and struggle? It isn't, how is that possible for us even to define what the struggle is? If, it's, if, if everything in life is just how you feel, 
you know, material reality no longer has any existence. The fundamental basis of the struggle for socialism is science, is an understanding of material reality and how that reflects in our ideas and our understanding, not the other way around. It's not our ideas which make reality, it's reality which form our ideas. And if we are educated out of understanding that, it's a massive um, uh, handicap in terms of our ability then to embrace socialism, because socialism, since Marx, is a science. And it's understood and it, it teaches us to understand the world on the basic of scientific principles and laws and recognizing the laws of the motion of history is part of what helps workers understand their place in pushing society forwards from capitalism to communism uh, to socialism and you know our media is part of a very important part of the armory of the ruling class so we shouldn't be surprised we are we have this idea that you know, journalism is there to to question and hold power to account. But these are these are myths. If you look in reality, any journalist who does do that will not have a career in an outlet that has an audience. Right? They'll have to struggle away on the margins, trying to find other ways to fund their ability to write. They won't um, they won't be able to make a living by writing the truth because that is not what the ruling class wants to propagate. And the longer its rule goes on, the more senile the class rule of the imperialist becomes, the less interested they are in any kind of truth. They'll do anything um, backward and reactionary to hold on to their power, to keep the working people stupid, to stop them from understanding material reality. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the other side of this whole transgender debate is this attack on reality i mean who would have thought 20 years ago you, you you wouldn't have imagined it was possible that you could be um deplatformed for hate speech for saying something so incontrovertible as women don't have dicks you know of course of course they don't everybody knows it how is that now a statement of hatred it's a as a, a clear statement of fact that women and men have different anatomy and yet we're being brainwashed into accepting uh this ideology that says oh no it's just your feelings if you have a penis and you decide you're a woman you're a woman now this is serving a fantastic purpose for the ruling class for the working class is extremely dangerous and th then we have these side effects of this policy, which, as you say, you know, some psychopathic rapist in a prison can see this uh, opportunity to get out of the male prison and into the female prison by simply putting his hand up and saying, uh, actually, I'm a woman. Oh, OK, then policy says we'll put you in with the women. Then we don't we don't question that. We just move you over. I mean, who wouldn't take advantage of that, you know? That is a that is a situation that's been created by an insane ideology, just as the situation of, you know, men, women, women's sporting competitions. You know, women's sport was only set up so that there was a chance for women to win in things where strength um, is the main uh, deciding factor in who's going to win. Because obviously, you know, men in general are bigger and stronger than women. And so it's not a level playing field in most sports. 
That's why there are women's competitions separate from men's competitions. You know, and the idea that some bloke who never wins the men's competition goes, oh, I know, I'm a woman, and goes over there, you know, crosses over and starts winning everything. You know, it's, it's obvious insanity, isn't it? <laughs> Truly, it is. It's, it's also no coincidence that many people who consider themselves diehard leftists in the UK, I'm thinking of certain journalists who run article after article on the oppression of trans, quote unquote, women. These are men. And mm. the reversal of sex and gender, which has precipitated this as well, has had dire effects on even the psychological life of many women who have been fighting this battle. There's now a Facebook group for women who've been fighting this and feel embattled by the fight. This makes me think to how media complicity in running story after story about the oppression of a, a, a tall bloke who's being told he shouldn't compete in world rugby, for instance, has been captured within the left. But those same leftists would agree with most of what you're saying in terms of class issues. They would disagree with me if I said to them, well, let's just have the poor identify as rich problem solved, you see? Yeah. And, and so they can't seem to harness their very incoherent logic when it comes to women's bodies. But everything else is off the table. No, you can't say someone identifies as black. Rachel Dolezal, but, uh, but Bruce Jenner is a woman. This inability to pair reality to material reality is lost on them. In the document that you wrote, Identity Politics and the Transgender Trend, Where is LGBT Ideology Taking Us? You co-wrote this with Ranjit Brar, who I believe is your brother, and, and Edward Renyard. In this document, you all make very good arguments right, yeah. based even on Friedrich Engels, who years ago gave a pathway to understanding how the oppression of women is directly linked to class. I tell feminists all the time to read his writing on this subject because it's very important in what we've spoken about earlier in terms of the sex trade and sex workers. He calls yeah. this out. He says that women are oppressed because of their class and because of their bodies. So if we can't discuss material reality linked to who's working in the factories, who's giving the people in lockdown their meals and driving them from place to place, or who is being trafficked? I mean, because it's not rich, rich Indians are not being trafficked. It's poor Indians being trafficked, right? And if we can't draw the, the, join the dots between all of these valences, then there is no hope. And so how have you come to address this in your everyday life? Because I uh, read a bit about you and I see that your father also has a long heritage in the fight for justice. Can you speak a bit about how you were informed growing up with your father on some of these issues? Yeah, sure. I mean, I am in a lucky position when it comes to accessing truth, because in fact, when I was in the womb, my mother was on a platform at women's conferences, giving talks about the importance of understanding Engels analysis, if you want to understand the women's question. So I grew up surrounded by people who had been in the women's struggle, um, in the anti-racist struggle, from a class perspective, from a scientific socialist perspective. And what that meant was, when I got to the age of wanting to find things out for myself, um, 
I had access to the information. Um, I was given a copy of Engels's Origin of the Family uh, for Christmas when I was 15. And um, it was amazing. Uh, it took me a long time to come to Marxism fully after that. I wasn't a Marxist the day after, but it certainly made me see things differently. And I was lucky to have, you know, uh, parents who never try, never treated me like a girl in quotes, which actually, even in my generation, was was quite uncom uncommon. There still was this great disparity. And there is again now, you know, in how we treat girls and boys and what we expect from them and for them and all the rest of it. Um, so I was I was lucky in that respect. When I wanted to find information, I could. And once I started to read Marxism for myself, there's no there's no going back from that. When your eyes have been opened and you've seen the truth and had it explained to you properly scientifically, um, you can't be fooled in the way that you were before, and your and your thinking becomes clearer. And you're much less prey to the barrage, the intimidating barrage of propaganda, which creates these fashions and fads and the, uh, the, the overarching narrative um, that the rest of the population is very subject to without a leadership and immersion in scientific socialism to guide it and help it to dis disconnect its own class interests from the ruling class interests. It's, it's totally subject to bourgeois ideology and propaganda without that, you know. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see in this age of identity politics how gender and race are used to turn people off Marxism. Marxism, which as far as I'm concerned, is the highest achievement of humanity, of science, has unleashed the most powerful and creative forces uh, slumbering in the lap of humanity uh, by abolishing unemployment and, and setting free the, the potential of the people to work and create for themselves. In the Soviet Union, we saw it. In, the Ch in China, we've seen it. Um, this power that Marxism has to solve humanity's problems, to, to explain how the world and, and, and uh, society and economics really work, to show how class uh, classes interact with one another and how class conflict drives society. All of this, this power that it puts in the hands of the working people, we are being turned off it by what? By being told, oh, well, Marx and Engels, Lenin, these people were white European men. They've got nothing to say to you. But this science is not white. It's not European. It is simply science. It's the development of human knowledge and understanding, and it belongs to all of us. Every single one of us has a stake in humanity and in the knowledge, the accumulated knowledge of humanity. And it's, um, it's, tra it's a tragedy to me. It's heartbreaking to see how the ways in which workers are separated from this heritage, this power, this weapon, which is there waiting for them to pick up and, you know, really, for me, the mission in life is to, to reconnect the masses with their heritage, with the knowledge, the power that will set them free. Because when you put together Marxism, the science of socialism, with organized working class people, there's absolutely nothing that the working class can't achieve. And all of these problems will be, will be soluble in quite short space of time, in fact.
It's interesting to see with the protests in India of the farmers that there is a possibility for people to fight back. Is this a gleaming light at the end of the tunnel for these people that something might come of their actions? Or will we see more reshuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic, as it were, by Modi? So India is a really interesting case in point. I mean, you, you asked what's going to happen with the farmers' protests. And of course, uh, that will essentially come down to the the leadership and its orientation and the, and the ability of that movement to organize for social justice, which means for socialism. It needs to have a strong organization and a strong scientific socialist leadership in order to achieve what Indians need, which is socialism. And you only have to look at the difference between India and China to see uh, what a revolution will bring you. You know, um, it's disgusting and obscene to me that having started at very much the same time, you know, after India's liberation 1947, Chinese revolution 1949, at that time, China was incomparably more backward than India in terms of its industrial development, um, its agriculture, everything was more backward than India, the level of feudalism pertaining there. Um, India, in all these decades, why is it? Why is it after so many years of alleged liberation and freedom that in India we're still talking about the need to electrify? We're still talking about the need to give education and homes and running water and sanitation to all, all our children in India. Why is that? You know, yes, we have some Indian billionaires now. Good. Does that mean oppression has been solved in India? Does that mean we're no longer exploited by imperialism? No, it doesn't. You know, the unequal model of development that comes from capitalism and from subservience to imperialism, you know, huge amount of India's wealth is still being looted abroad. And the unequal development means that we have a growing class of relatively uh, better off middle class and a, a, a clique of hugely super rich and, and politically dominant Indians at the top of Indian society. And yet there are huge huge numbers of people in India who are incredibly, incredibly poor. There are, there are people who live on the streets who were born on the street and die on the street and never know a home. You know, I mean, that level of poverty, India has the largest concentration of the world's absolute poor than any other country in the world. You know, that's capitalist development. That's why we've got, on the one hand, internet banking and mobile phones everywhere. And on the other hand, you know, this lack of running water, electrification in schools. You know, after 70 years of quote unquote yeah. independence and, and liberation. Um, so the reason for that inequality is capitalism and continued uh, debt uh, and peonage to imperialism. And these things cannot be solved without changing the economic basis of society without it's very much to be hoped that the indian masses will start to realize that that the communist movement the socialist movement in india will start to be able to join together the various parts of the movement there because i think the biggest the biggest weakness it seemed to me in the indian movement for socialism has been a kind of split between the peasants and the urban working class and of course in a country like india the socialist movement needs to embrace both those sections uh, equally bring them together and connect all of their struggles in the drive for socialism. Um, but, you know, there is no other 
solution for India. What would it look like on the ground to people listening to us now? A socialism. How can people get involved to fight this? Because when I look at the number of NGOs in India, in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Morocco, that are devoted to transgender identity, I sigh. <laughs> we see them funded by some of the groups I mentioned earlier, the Ford Foundation, specific projects to put into the machinery gender identity in places where people are having to walk five kilometers to pick up water, put it on their head, walk back five kilometers. There is an imbalance in priorities and it's being driven by multinational capital. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the priorities of the third sector, the NGOs, are the priorities of imperialism. They're not the priorities of the workers themselves. And that is very clear from what you just said. Where do the resources go? Why don't the resources go into finding a cure for malaria, you know, or cholera, you know, things or, or just making sure that everybody gets a decent meal every day? You know, these are not where the resources go, precisely because that doesn't serve imperialism, although it would very much serve the poor workers at the bottom of the pile. My appeal to everybody is to join the Workers' Party as a first step or just come along and meet us, you know, become a supporter, join our email list and start to understand that there's a different way of looking at society. You know, people have been turned off politics because they feel that all politicians are the same. Now, if you're talking about bourgeois career politicians, that conclusion is absolutely right. All of the career politicians uh, for the big parties are serving the same class and none of them are acting in the interests of the mass of the workers, although they ask for your votes every now and again. But that doesn't mean that politics is not for you. That means that the ruling class's interests are not your interests. And that's the first step in recognizing that we need something different. And the Workers' Party has been founded to create uh, to refound a mass organized movement of workers able and willing to stand up against capital in support of the needs of workers, to direct the fight, the struggle of working people against the system for socialism, and to actually bring back the dignity in struggle the, of working class people, bring back class consciousness, bring back our recognition of our role in history, the role of abolishing this system and bringing forth the next system, the socialist system, which will unleash the creative potential of humanity. I'm, since lockdown more than ever, just uh, about the whole situation, because I thought that lockdown would bring about finally some coherence of people being able to see suffering and oppression because they too are experiencing it. I heard of all people, Julia Hartley Brewer this morning talking about the poor. So here we have right-wing media commentators paying more attention to class, to poverty, fighting against lockdown on that basis than the Guardian or the Independent where it's lockdown, baby, lockdown. And I've been so despondent about it because there was a, a wee moment, maybe for two months, where we didn't get trans bombardment in the media, but it's come back full force. And now it's anyone who questions, not the virus, not the pandemic, but who's questioning mitigation efforts is immediately considered anti-science, COVID denier, you name it. 
And we're not seeing anyone on the left address the abyss between who's getting to lockdown and who's suffering because of it. It's just phenomenal to me to witness this. I just, I feel like we're stuck and all the hope I had of COVID evidencing the disparities between the poor and the wealthy seem to be slow in, in manifesting themselves. I think, uh, don't be despondent. I think uh, COVID, the economic crisis combined with the health crisis has absolutely laid bare uh, the workings and the inequalities of the capitalist system and made it very hard for the standard justifications to continue to be used. That poor people are poor because they're lazy, that the unemployed just, just won't look hard enough for a job. All kinds of, you know, that, that the people who are paid the least are worth the least to society. All these kind of uh, mantras that used to be repeated to ourselves have lost all their validity and they can't be used anymore. And that's really shaking up the system. It's very noticeable to me that the Financial Times and the Times, which are the two sort of, I see the kind of organs of the ruling class, uh, where the ruling class tends to talk to itself quite a lot, are absolutely full every day. They're full of warnings to the ruling class, to the billionaires, to do something about redistribution, to do something about poverty. The level of inequality is unsustainable. The direction of travel is going to take us in the, in, in the direction of social revolution if you don't do something now. And all these canaries in the coal mine are indicators that the commentators who are serious and looking are worried for the safety and security of the system if something isn't done and of course the problem for them is the capitalists even though they see the cataclysm approach actually can't do anything about it because they're busy trying to you know win the battle of competition in in a very fierce situation of deep economic crisis and you know, you, you worry about how slow the workers are to wake up to these realities, but the lessons I don't think are being lost. It's just, you know, you have to recognize when seeds are planted, they don't sprout straight away. But the seeds are being planted. Seeds have been being planted over the last 20 years and more. You know, seeds about the media, seeds about bourgeois politics in general, seeds about um, inequality and all the rest of it and unemployment, about the Labour Party and its role in propping up the system rather than serving working people, you know, about war and democracy, all kinds of institutions that the ruling working class had a lot of faith in 20 years ago have been hugely undermined by events over the most recent period. Uh, austerity was a big one when the banks collapsed and were bailed out and then we've been paying the price and we're going to see the same thing start to happen again now on an immeasurably higher scale when the people are immeasurably suffering uh, so much more and measurably immeasurably poorer than they were back in 2008 when austerity uh, really began to bite hard so the seeds are being sown and I think there's a huge amount of anger boiling away under the surface and you don't know what's the thing that's gonna set that free, but it could be closer than you think. And really to me, the job is to organize as fast as possible now, because in order to give decent leadership to workers, when they start to move, we have to already have an organization of tried and tested um, you know, working class politicians able 
you know, working class organization needs to be there, it needs to be trusted, it needs to be organized, it needs to be have a clear narrative to be able to help direct the energies of the working class when the working class starts to move. But my worry is not that nobody's moving, my worry is it could come any time and we won't be ready. <laughs> Bye.